All right, morning, everyone. <clears throat> Father, we come to the time of the worship service that, as Jim would, has shared with us, means feasting on the bread, the manna that you've given us, the spiritual food that gives us life. And I pray that if there'd be any unbelievers here who are dead in their sins, that this would be the day that your word would bring them to life, that you'd regenerate them through the preaching, and they'd see their need for Christ. For those who are believers already, we pray for spiritual growth and sanctification in this important area of forgiveness. We've reached these verses as we go verse by verse through your gospel, and I'm so thankful for them, Lord, as I find myself challenged to forgive uh, the, the way that Christ does and as you command in Scripture. And so it's providential, Lord, at least for me, to reach this place with so much conviction. And I pray, Lord, that we'd, we'd be able to rightly divide it. I know we come here having heard teaching that might even conflict with some of the things that I'll be sharing this morning, that after laboring in, in prayer and in your word, Lord, I hope you can be pleased by what is, what is preached today. I pray that it is from you for your people. Help us to understand forgiveness biblically, not as perhaps we've heard in other teaching and definitely not as we've heard from the world. We, we recognize the way that you forgive us, and because of the great forgiveness that's been given to us through the gospel, you command us to extend forgiveness to others, Lord. And so be doing a work in our hearts and give us understanding of what is preached from Scripture. And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen, amen. The tell this morning's sermon, which I told you last week about, is, is repentance a condition for forgiveness or should we forgive conditionally? Is repentance a, con- might be the longest tell I've ever had for a sermon, is repentance a condition for forgiveness, or should we forgive unconditionally? So if you're new to joining us on Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse. We finished verse 6 last week, but I did tell you that there was a nagging question that we needed to answer, and I definitely could not fit it in that sermon. I told you we would revisit it, and it provided more than enough material for its own sermon. I even had to remove some. Um, it relates to verses 3 and 4, if you want to look there with me. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And then notice this, if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, again, I repent, you must forgive him. And so twice we're told to forgive our brother if he repents, which begs what question? Oh, come on, we're going to need to do better than that this morning. What if he doesn't repent? In other words, is repentance a condition for forgiveness, or should we forgive unconditionally? Let me say that one more thing, one more time. Is our forgiveness conditional on people repenting, or is our, condition, our forgiveness unconditional? And, and I don't even have this on my notes, but I'm, I'm deeply burdened. I just want to share this with you candidly. The longer that I'm a Christian, the more convinced I become of the need to be discerning. And I don't mean because of what we hear in the world, but I mean sometimes even what we hear in the church or in sermons or in uh, Bible teaching we might listen to on the radio. And, and I've definitely developed a much greater de- desire to be sure that what I'm hearing is biblical. And so sometimes we might hear something and it could sound good. We could become more convinced of it because we've heard it so many times, perhaps. And so we say, well, if this many people are saying it, then it must be true. But we want to regularly ask the question, is this biblical? Is this what God's Word says? And I'm convinced we hear things that are not always biblical. 
And so I want you to just have that in mind as we begin these verses, because I suspect the sermon is going to conflict for many of you with things that you've, you've heard in the past. I have been asked this question, is repentance a condition for forgiveness or should we forgive unconditionally? I've wondered about it myself, so I was glad to have this week to throw myself, and I'd actually begun last week, so almost two weeks to throw myself into this topic or into answering this question, and I didn't, I didn't come to this with an answer. I probably would have answered this differently if you asked me two weeks ago. If we'd had a discussion as elders, I think I would have said something much different than I'm saying to you today. So I did not become convinced of this years ago. This is something that I have become convinced of through my studying over these past two weeks. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before we answer this important question, we need to back up, get a little bit of momentum into it. We talked last week about the need to forgive, why we would forgive, but we haven't really talked about what it means to forgive. And so this brings us to lesson one. Rebuke sin to help produce repentance. Rebuke sin to help produce repentance. Repentance is one of the themes of verses 3 and 4 occurring two times. We are told to repent or excuse me, we're told to rebuke to help produce repentance. So repentance is the desired outcome of the rebuke, which kind of leads you to believe or at least implies that without the rebuke, there might not be the repentance, right? It's not to say that God couldn't bring repentance about in someone's life without a rebuke, but to look at this candidly implies that the rebuke is what God uses to produce the repentance in the person's life. Because we want to see people repent, we want to persuade versus condemn. Let me say that one more time. There's a world of difference when rebuking between persuading and condemning. We don't want to condemn. We want to persuade. Condemning sounds like this. I cannot imagine God ever forgiving you for what you've done. If God was to forgive you, that would almost make him a bad God. He would almost have to be unjust to be able to forgive the wickedness that you have committed. I mean, honestly, I don't even know if I've ever met someone as, as wicked as you. I, I think about some of the bad people I've known, and you're, you're pretty much worse than them. You're like the most sinful person I have ever met in my life. That's condemning. Persuading is helping people see their sin the way God sees it. Persuading is helping people see what the Bible says about their sin. And we use God's word because God's word reveals the truth about sin to us. I want to make this very practical today, so I've provided the five steps. You can see them on your bulletin if you want to go ahead and look there that I would recommend following, or at least something pretty close to this when rebuking sin. So if you look on your bulletin, first, before you rebuke someone, you've got to do some homework. You need to know what God's Word says about the sin that this person committed. Don't go in blindfolded or, or ignorant. Find verses related to the sin the person committed. That's the first step. Second, share the verses with the person. And you've heard me say before that it's best not to read the verses to someone. It's best to do what? Ask the person to read the verses aloud. There's something about having to read verses that rebuke the sin you committed. And so ask the person to read those verses aloud is the second step, which means you might have to have 
hand someone a Bible. Third, ask the person to explain the verses. What do you think what you just read means? What are these verses forbidding? What does God say in his word about this sin or this action? And then fourth, ask the person if they disobeyed the verses. You read those verses. Do you believe that you have disobeyed these verses? And then fifth, ask the person the proper response to disobeying God's word. What is the proper response to disobeying God's word? What do you hope they're going to say? Repent. They're going to say that they need to repent. Now, you could be listening to me and you can say, well, Pastor Scott, what if it doesn't go this well? And they, don't, they d- deny disobeying God's word or they don't, they, they don't acknowledge that repentance is the proper response. Well, there isn't something better you can do. I don't have an alternative to this because this is the best that you can do. You give someone God's word, and if God's word doesn't convict them and bring them to repentance, there's no plan B. There's no, there's no superior position to take unless you go to the next step in Matthew 18 where you bring one or two people with you. But you can read this and say, well, what if it doesn't, if it doesn't happen exactly like I said? And it might not happen like I'm saying. In fact, the verses themselves tell us that it might not happen like I'm saying here. Look in verse 3. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him and what? It doesn't say when he repents. What does it say? It says, if he repents. The verse communicates that it is not guaranteed that people will repent. Persuading people to repent is little more than persuading them to see their sin the way God sees it. And it's not to say that I have everything figured out or I always pray the way that I should, but if you've ever been with me when I have prayed for people's repentance, something I I believe I frequently do during our Sunday morning prayer time, I regularly pray that God helps the person see their sin the way that God sees it. That's my regular prayer for people's repentance, that God helps them see their sin the way that God sees it. Now, this could seem discouraging that it says, if he repents, versus when he repents. That be, it could seem discouraging that God doesn't guarantee a, a perfect response from the person that you rebuke, but it should actually be encouraging because it's almost like God's way of letting you know that it's not your fault or that you didn't do something wrong or there wasn't something better that you could have done. If you have given people God's word and helped them see what his word says about what they've done, there is nothing better that you can do. And then you're only called to be a watchman using the language of Ezekiel, right? And what does the watchman do? He simply relays, he's the messenger, he relays the information. And then God holds that person responsible for the information that they have received. You are not held responsible for the person's response to that information or response to what God's word says. Now, one important point regarding people repenting it is almost always a super bad idea to say these three words to people. It is okay. When people come to you convicted about what they've done, do not tell them it is okay. Let's play this out. Someone sins against you. God works in the person's heart to convict them about what they have done. They have not repented yet, but they're close. They come to you to apologize for what they've done. And because humility is so incredibly attractive, it is, to see someone humble 
before you, the natural response is to want to encourage them. And so when they come to you, you want to say, it's okay. If they sin, it's not okay. And in fact, if God is convicting them about their sin and you say it is okay, you are telling them the exact opposite of what God has been telling them through his Holy Spirit. Do you want to be the person to undermine the work that God is doing in someone's heart? Do you want to be the person to shortchange the conviction that the Holy Spirit has been bringing on someone that could result in repentance? When you say it is okay, you could be lifting that conviction that could possibly produce repentance, undermine what God's doing in their heart. Now, we say it's okay because we want to encourage people. And here's the good news. There are other really wonderful ways to encourage people without undermining or shortchanging what God wants to do in their hearts. So if someone comes to you humbly and apologizes, you can say, that was very humble of you. Thank you for apologizing. Your example convicts me. Your example is causing me to want to examine my heart and see what things I need to repent of or apologize for as well. I am challenged to examine myself, as, as David said. Thank you for having the humility to come to me. And, and all that, all you've done is actually encourage further behavior like that from the person without shortchanging what God wants to do. Just as the word repents is one of the themes in verses 3 and 4, the other theme is forgiveness. We see it in verse 3, it says, if he repents, forgive him. And then at the end of verse 4, if the person says, I repent, you must forgive him. So we're told that if people repent, then we must forgive them. That's strong language. It says, if someone, Jesus doesn't say this, he doesn't say, if someone repents, forgive them. He says, if someone repents, you must forgive them. It is demanded of you that you forgive them. And then this brings us to lesson two. Associate forgiveness with a reconciled relationship. Associate forgiveness with a reconciled relationship. What is forgiveness exactly? What does it mean? Forgiveness is about reconciling with people who have sinned against us. Forgiveness is a commitment to pardon graciously the sin that was committed against us, not hold it against that person, and then have a reconciled relationship with them. Listen to these verses that tell us, and this is going to be an important theme through the sermon, that our forgiveness is to resemble God's forgiveness. Let me say that one more time. We must keep in mind while considering what forgiveness is, that we are to strive, I say strive because we can't do it perfectly, to forgive like God forgives. We are to strive to forgive like God forgives us. And here are verses demonstrating that. Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we expect God to forgive us like we forgive others. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as or like God in Christ forgave you. So, so Paul commands us to forgive others, and then he says, you need to forgive like God has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So he commands us to forgive, and then he says, as the Lord, or like the Lord, has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so we're told to strive to forgive others like God has forgiven 
forgiven us. With that in mind, sometimes you'll hear people say things unbiblically, like this. Forgiveness means forgetting. Forgiveness means forgetting. And one of the incredibly troubling things about that statement is I don't know anyone who can forget the things they want to forget. I'm sure by a show of hands that all of us would raise, we can think of things we wish we could forget. Now, if our forgiveness was tied to us being able to forget those things, we'd all have to feel as though we can never forgive. But who else doesn't forget but forgives? God. God does not forget our sins. You might remember a sermon I preached in July. It was titled, I will remember their sins no more. God does not forget our sins, but he chooses not to dwell on them. He chooses not to remember them. Now, we can't do that perfectly, but can we strive to try not to think about people's sins? We can't forget them, but we can try not to dwell on them. If you're anything like me, perhaps there have been times when people have sinned and you just sat there dwelling on it. There have been times where Katie and I were having conversations and we recognize that it was going in an ugly direction, and we had to say, let's not talk about this further. I can see how this is visually changing you to talk about what this person is doing. That's choosing not to dwell on that or choosing not to remember that any longer. Have you ever been sitting there, and you're in a pretty good mood? You remember what someone did. It's almost like the devil just puts this in your mind. You could do your best not to think about it, but then instead you just let it start festering and you're remembering all of the details of it, your heart is beating faster, and you're becoming angrier by the moment as you concentrate and recall all of the deals of what that person has done. That's what we're not supposed to do, right? <laughs> to be like God is to refuse to do that and strive to put those thoughts out of our minds. Now, I want to ask you a question. Many times I ask a question and there are multiple answers. This is not one of those times. And I tell you that just in case someone happens to blurt out an an the answer and it's not the right answer. So just be warned that I am looking for one cor correct answer with this. Is forgiveness primarily about feelings or actions toward people? Is forgiveness primarily about feelings or actions toward people? Any brave souls? actions. It is primarily about actions because we cannot control how we feel toward people, at least not directly. I'll get to that in just a moment. We cannot control how we feel toward people, but we can control how we act toward them. If forgiveness was about how we felt, we would not be able to choose to forgive. God would simply say something like, well, there will be a point in your life where you forgive this person when you're no longer angry with them or after your anger has, has dissipated or enough time has passed that you're no longer upset about that, and then you'll just be able to forgive them. He doesn't say that because we can't control our feelings. We can't control our emotions, but we can control our choices, our behaviors. We can choose to forgive people because we can control how we treat them. Now, because we can't choose to forget what people have done, we might not have the best feelings toward them when we forgive and reconcile. Let me say that one more time. 
because we can't control the way that we feel. We might not always have the best feelings or emotions toward people when we choose to forgive them and then reconcile and then by extension treat them well. When we forgive people, it does not mean all of the negative feelings are just going to go away. Here's how forgiveness doesn't work. I could wish that it did work this way. Someone repents, I forgive the person, poof, all of my negative feelings toward the person disappears. It just doesn't happen that way. We still frequently, even after forgiving, have to resist the temptation to be angry toward the person, resentful, perhaps bitter, resist the temptation to retaliate. But we can still forgive because we can choose to treat them well despite those temptations we are resisting. And here's why I stress this. When we have forgiven people, it is tempting to think that we haven't if we still struggle with temptation. We might think, I want to believe that I have forgiven this person, but I'm still hurt. I want to believe that I have forgiven this person, but I feel angry at times. I'm tempted to retaliate. I'm resisting, becoming bitter. Because of these temptations I must resist, I must not have forgiven the person. And that's not true. If someone came to me and said, I want to believe that I have forgiven this person, Pastor Scott, but I don't like the way that I'm feeling toward them at times. How do I know if I have really forgiven them or not? Or not? This is what I would say. How have you treated the person? Have you been kind to them or have you mistreated them? If you have been unkind to them, then it seems like you have not forgiven them. Or have you resisted hostile feelings toward them, acted in a kind and reconciled way toward them, then it seems like you have forgiven them regardless of how you're feeling. Now, the good news, and the reason that I said earlier we can't directly control our feelings toward people, but we can indirectly control them, is that when we choose to treat people kindly, following their repentance, the, the chronology of their repentance, our forgiveness, the reconciliation, and now the kind treatment with the restored relationship, is our feelings can begin to follow those actions. Let me say that one more time. When you strive to be kind to people you have forgiven your feelings and emotions tend to follow. You will slowly begin to find your feelings of hostility becoming feelings of affection toward the individual. Now, there are some important qualifications regarding a reconciled relationship or a relationship that follows forgiveness, which we need to discuss, and this brings us to lesson three. Forgiveness doesn't always mean the same relationship. Forgiveness does not always mean the same relationship. People can repent. We can forgive. We can be reconciled. We can be kind and treat people well and still not have the exact same relationship with them that we had prior to the sin. Forgiveness does not always mean an identical relationship, and it does not always mean that the consequences are eliminated. And again, this allows our forgiveness to be like God's forgiveness, because can you sin, repent, be forgiven by God, and still have consequences? There are many Christians, or perhaps all of us to some extent, that are living with some consequences 
of sins that we have committed, yet we are still forgiven through Christ. And so even when God forgives us, it does not mean the elimination of all consequences. I'll give you two examples of what this could look like. Let's say your child plays with another child, and this other child hurts your child or perhaps introduces something ungodly into your child's life that this other child knew that you did not want around your child. The parents bring this child over to your house to ask for forgiveness. You can forgive the child, but it does not mean that you're going to let your child play with that child unsupervised. It does not mean that you're going to let your child go down to that child's house anymore. Now, that doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. It just means that now you're exercising some discernment. Another example, using adults. Let's say a wife is abused by her husband. She goes to the elders, which is what I would recommend to any wives that experience abuse. Go to the elders. The elders find a safe place for her, more than likely for her children as well. And then authorities can be sought and counsel can begin to be administered to the sinful husband. When the elders meet with the husband and counsel him, let's say he becomes convicted about his sin against his wife, and he is repentant, and he wants the opportunity to ask his wife to forgive him for what he has done. And so in a supervised environment where the elders are the elders are present, they bring the wife to her husband, and they oversee this broken husband asking his wife for forgiveness. The wife extends the forgiveness. She forgives her husband. But does that mean that the separation must end right at that moment? I would say definitely not. There probably needs to be further counsel given to the husband, and there probably needs to be more time to demonstrate the sincerity of his repentance. Because I've said this before, some, I've asked, what demonstrates the sincerity of repentance? And so frequently, people will say change. And that is an incomplete answer. The complete answer is change and time. Who can't change temporarily or momentarily? Everyone can, and, and most people do. Most people who perhaps have never repented, have still changed at different times momentarily or temporarily in their lives. And so any, any wise elders are, are going to expect an amount of time demonstrating the repentance of this husband. And so at this point, here's what we understand. We understand why we rebuke sin, to produce repentance. We understand what to do if people repent, we're to forgive them. We understand what it looks like when we forgive people a reconciled relationship that under some circumstances might not be identical to the previous relationship. But it still leaves us with the same question that I introduced last sermon and again at the beginning of this sermon, is repentance a condition for forgiveness or should we forgive unconditionally? Now, unfortunately, scholars do not agree on this. This is one of the most difficult sermons I've had to put together because there was people on both sides one camp says you forgive people whether they repent or not. This is known as unconditional forgiveness. It, it is condition, uh, forgiveness that is not conditional or on the other person. Another group says forgive if people repent. This is known as conditional forgiveness. The forgiveness is conditional on the person's repenting. And this is the camp that I have found myself in. I've become convinced of this. And this brings us to lesson three. 
Forgiveness should be conditional on the person repenting. Forgiveness should be conditional on the person repenting. Now, this lesson, I'll give you, give you a moment to write. This lesson, or this camp, does not negate or deny the reality that God desires us to be forgiving people, that He wants us desiring to forgive. This camp does not prevent us from having hearts that are willing to forgive at a moment's notice, or we could go even further and say that this camp that I've found myself in or that I'm preaching this morning doesn't negate that the Lord wants us to have hearts that want to forgive. We're looking for the opportunity. We're standing at the door waiting for the person, you know, to knock. We desire to forgive. All of those things can still be true with this view of forgiveness. Picture the father of the prodigal son. I mean, if there's a great, if there, I don't know that there is a greater example of waiting and desiring to extend forgiveness than we see with the father of the prodigal son who appears to be out there every single day longing for his son's return. And at that moment that he recognizes his son runs to him. But even in that account, we've got a repentant son. We've got a father extending forgiveness, but it's a father who is extending forgiveness to the repentant son. But even in that scenario, we still have a father who wants to forgive while he waits for that repentance. Now, here's an important point. Just give me your attention for a moment, because this is a very important part of this sermon. Forgiveness is not a private individual act. It is not solitary. Forgiveness involves two people. It is not accomplished by one person. Forgiveness is a transaction between two people, which is why some people like Stuart Scott, who I'll mention a little later in the sermon, doesn't call it conditional forgiveness. He calls it transactional forgiveness. A transaction must occur between the two individuals, the person who has sinned and, then the per- and repents and then the person who offers the forgiveness. Got Questions is a site that I like. I've recommended at different times, and they agree with this view of conditional forgiveness, and they wrote, modern pop psychology has wrongly taught that forgiveness is one-sided, or in other words, not dependent on the other person, and that the purpose of unconditional forgiveness is to free the offended person of feelings of bitterness while we are not to harbor bitterness in our hearts, Hebrews 12, 15, or repay evil for evil, 1 Peter 3, 9, we must follow God's lead and not extend forgiveness to the unrepentant. In short, we should withhold forgiveness from those who do not confess and repent. At the same time, we should extend the offer of forgiveness and maintain an attitude of readiness to forgive. Now, I'm also convinced that forgiveness is conditional on people repenting because it seems that that's what the Bible plainly teaches. If you look in Luke 17, it says we forgive people if they repent. It literally has the word if there. It says, if he repents, forgive him. And the next verse also ties forgiveness to repentance. If he sins against you seven times a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. 
Now, could God, if he wanted unconditional forgiveness, have written this differently? We'd ne- we ne- here's what we never want to do. Give me your attention. Never do this with Scripture. Never take it and manipulate it. Never massage it to get it to say different things. If God wanted unconditional forgiveness, he would say, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him and forgive him. And it wouldn't say anything about the individual repenting. God could have done that. He did not make a mistake. This is what he intended to say. We don't have to apologize for it. We don't have to make any excuses. We just have to accept what is written to us. Last week, I mentioned the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's one of the premier passages in Scripture dealing with forgiveness. In fact, if you struggle with forgiving people like I do, I don't think that there would be a better passage for you to read regularly or perhaps memorize. Just reading this parable almost terrifies you about not being forgiven enough, right? Even in this parable, forgiveness is conditional versus unconditional. Forgiveness is extended after being initiated by the person with the sin debt. Listen to it again, Matthew 18, 24. When the master began to settle his debts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master forgave him because he forgives unconditionally. No, that's not what it says. It says, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the master had not forgiven the servant at this point. The servant was unforgiven. The, serv- the master would have forgiven him if this was an instance of unconditional forgiveness. Verse 26 says, the servant falls on his knees and he implores his master and he says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So here's the point. The master forgave the servant after the servant humbled himself which I take to picture his repentance because that's how we are forgiven. We let Scripture interpret Scripture, and forgiveness with God follows repentance. The servant's forgiveness was conditional on him humbling himself and initiating that with his master. And this parable illustrates two things. First, it illustrates how we're forgiven. We're forgiven by humbling ourselves and repenting versus working off our debt. And you notice that. What did the servant request? let me pay off my debt, let me work hard. And the master would not allow that because the master pictures God and God does not allow us to work off our sin debt. He just forgives it completely, in total, without any effort on our part after we have repented. Second, the parable illustrates how we're to forgive others. Listen to this. That same servant, he went out, he found one of his servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he begins to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. The fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, and he says, have patience with me, and I'll pay you. But he refused. He went out, put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Now, if unconditional forgiveness was biblical, the master would have been upset that the servant had not already forgiven his servant. But the master was upset when the servant would not forgive his servant after that servant humbled himself. In other words, the master saw conditional forgiveness. 
he expected the servant to forgive because that servant's servant had humbled himself. The master was only angry with the servant after he would not forgive the other servant who humbled himself and initiated the forgiveness. Now, here are some things I knew coming into this sermon. I knew that many of you have heard teaching that completely contradicts what I'm preaching this morning, and I knew that much of this could be completely new to you, and an amount of it or most of it was new to me until last week. But the main reason that I thought that this would be hard for you to hear is because we have a wrong view of unforgiveness. We typically have an unbiblical view of unforgiveness. When I talk about being unforgiving, your minds almost automatically interpret that as me saying we can mistreat people. That if you're unforgiving towards someone, that that's license or liberty to sin against them. And this brings us to lesson five. Associate unforgiveness with an unreconciled relationship versus mistreatment. Associate unforgiveness not with mistreatment, but with an unreconciled relationship. Do me a favor, and if you look back at lesson one on your bulletin, lesson one says associate forgiveness with a reconciled relationship. And I just want to ask you, were you comfortable with lesson one? Just give me a head note. Were you comfortable with lesson one? Was that a comfortable lesson for you? Did that, what? Oh, it's lesson two? Oh, thank you very much. That's, sorry about that. So look back at lesson two, which says associate forgiveness with a reconciled relationship. Was that a comfortable lesson for you? Was it? If lesson two was comfortable, that's the correct lesson now, isn't it? Associate forgiveness with our Then lesson five should be comfortable for you. <laughs> If forgiveness is associated with a reconciled relationship, that it should be comfortable to understand that unforgiveness is associated with an unreconciled relationship. When I say we don't forgive people until they repent, I simply mean the relationship is unreconciled, but I don't mean that we can mistreat people, sin against them, become bitter, retaliate. Are you familiar with the imprecatory psalms? The imprecatory psalms are an imprecation is a prayer that God will bring harm on someone. And there are imprecatory psalms in the psalms where the author asks God to bring calamity or harm or destruction or judgment on his enemies. Probably one of the most well-known imprecatory psalms, Psalm 58, 6, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. <laughs> now, some of you, I'm going to lose you because now you're flipping through your Bible trying to see if it actually says that. Just trust me, it does actually say that. Psalm 58, 6, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. When I talk about unforgiveness, maybe you think that's what I mean. That we can be cruel or we can be harsh. That's not what I mean at all. Unforgiveness is not liberty to mistreat, retaliate, repay evil for evil, become bitter, slander, or memorize all the imprecatory psalms and pray them down on people. Let me read another quote, this time from Tim Challies, who helps explain what unforgiveness is and is not. And he begins with an interesting story that I remember, and some of you will remember this as well. He writes, Shortly after the Columbine shootings, I remember seeing a photograph of students standing outside the school holding signs that said, We forgive you. I remember being surprised and furious 
why would anyone wish to forgive people who caused such pain and destruction who expressed no remorse and who sought no forgiveness it made a mockery of forgiveness to extend it to those who did not want it the same thing happened after the recent virginia tech shootings people forgave the killer but only after his death and without him expressing any regret or remorse what is it that bothered me about this he goes on to explain that people were forgiving differently than the way god forgives and here's part of what he wrote of course we will freely offer forgiveness pursue and long for the ability to extend forgiveness and seek reconciliation but we will not forgive those who are unrepentant this makes sense when we understand that in its fullest sense forgiveness requires repentance forgiveness can only happen when one person repents and the other forgives the ultimate aim of forgiveness is reconciliation but a relationship can only be restored when both parties are willing there cannot be communion when one party is unwilling to state that there has been forgiveness in such a case is to make a mockery of the biblical concept of forgiveness and I would say this because I, I know most of you well enough you believe in and practice church discipline can I just say that if you believe in and practice church discipline it is a contradiction to say that you believe in and practice unconditional forgiveness because church discipline by nature demands conditional forgiveness what does it take for us to be reconciled with individuals under church discipline their repentance maybe I could say it like this if you believe in and practice church discipline and you also claim to believe in and practice unconditional forgiveness you at least believe in and practice conditional forgiveness toward people under church discipline <laughs> because church discipline requires an unreconciled relationship with people who are unrepentant church discipline is about separation from individuals who are unrepentant they are not if they were unconditionally forgiven church discipline would not be practiced against them and this is why unconditional forgiveness is unloving if it ignores sin unconditional forgiveness is unloving if it ignores sin and this brings us to lesson six unconditional forgiveness can hinder repentance I'm striving to be very precise with my language I did not say unconditional forgiveness is unloving I said unconditional forgiveness is unloving if it ignores sin and the lesson does not say unconditional forgiveness hinders repentance or always hinders repentance I said it can hinder for, it can hinder repentance unconditional forgiving forgiveness it sounds loving but it is completely unloving if it ignores people's repentance because anything that hinders or compromises repentance is unloving the most loving response in an unrepentant person's life is the behavior that will help produce repentance and that's why one of the frequent things that I've prayed for people in unrepentant sin is for God to I don't know see you're in your you might hear this because you're in the same situation that I'm in do you know what will produce repentance in someone's life just shake your head you don't know if we did we'd do that 
or we or at least we would pray that that's what god introduces into their lives if i knew that this is what will produce repentance in someone's life and that's what i would pray i'd say god do this to this person or introduce this into the person's life but i don't know what that is so I, my frequent prayer and again i don't have it all figured out but it is something like this father introduce into this person's life whatever is necessary to produce repentance and i think that's a good prayer for unrepentant people and when i pray for people under church discipline father introduce into their life whatever is necessary to produce repentance and for what reason so they can be reconciled to their church family and most importantly be reconciled to their heavenly father carrying on with people who sinned as though nothing happened or unconditionally forgiving people and then treating them as though nothing happened can shortchange their spiritual growth repentance is a beautiful thing and the person who rebukes the person in sin plays a huge part in that person's repentance you're the vessel god wants to use it'll be his holy spirit working in that person's life but you're still that in earthly instrument in the redeemer's hands in the lord's hands in that person's life if forgiveness is given prematurely without the sinner repenting the sin has not been dealt with openly by both sides and i'm i don't want to say i've gotten tired of hearing this because i i recognize some truth in this but so frequently when i have asked over the last two weeks multiple people why should you forgive there's almost always a selfish response for yourself you forgive for you okay what about the other person what about what's best for them and it's not continuing on in unrepentant sin and i'm, and I'm not saying not to say that if some of you have shared that with me that's not bad counsel just don't stop there there is something to be said for being a forgiving person and there's something to be said regarding the detriment of being an unforgiving person we are hurting ourselves when we refuse to forgive people who should be forgiven that is detrimental and damaging to us in mental emotional and most importantly spiritual ways and so i'm not i'm not condemning that answer i'm just i'm just saying don't stop there don't just be concerned about yourself be concerned about that that person in sin because without repentance the person who sinned is never going to truly understand the magnitude of their sin and they're also not going to understand what it means to be forgiven because of our church's familiarity with acbc the association of certified biblical counselors many of you are probably familiar with stuart scott perhaps you've read some of his materials he is <clears throat> he works for acbc and he's one of the professors at the master's university and some of you might already know that he teaches conditional forgiveness but again he calls it transactional forgiveness and i'll share part of what he said because he also talks about how unconditional forgiveness can be unloving he said forgiveness deals with sin but unconditional forgiveness is just let it go and move on it doesn't resolve the sin that took place we must understand what sin is it is a breach it separates it needs to be dealt with confessed and asked for forgiveness for as we see in first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and proverbs 28 13 if you cover your sin you will not prosper but if you confess your sin and forsake it you will find mercy you confess to the person you sinned against reconciliation means bringing two people together after the sin has been dealt with that is love people think if you love you won't deal with it 
We just move things around to make it easy on us, which is a real problem. Therapeutic unconditional forgiveness is more about us. It's not loving your brother or sister, and it's not thinking of God's glory and how to remedy something for his glory. So of greater concern than how we feel is what God thinks. And what brings him greater glory than repentance? What, and we were in Luke 15 not that long ago. And what causes heaven to rejoice? Repeatedly, it is the repentance of sinners. Now, interestingly, Stuart Scott repeatedly said that unconditional forgiveness is unloving because of the potential to leave the sin unresolved. I'll tell you one more reason I believe in conditional forgiveness. It is the way God forgives. God is a conditional forgiver. If God was an unconditional forgiver, there would be universalism. If God was an unconditional forgiver, everyone would be forgiven, nobody would go to hell, and everyone would go to heaven. God is the premier conditional forgiver. And, like I said earlier, we are commanded to forgive like God. God forgives when there's repentance. His forgiveness is completely conditional. And because he forgives conditionally based on our repentance, we should forgive conditionally based on whether people have repented. If we were expected to forgive people when they were not repented, and consider this for a moment, if we were expected to forgive people who had not repented, we are being held to a higher standard of forgiveness than whom? Than God himself. And that's one of the reasons that scholars argue about this. Is God going to call us to a higher standard of forgiveness than he himself observes? I don't think so. Tim Challies also wrote, we are to model God's forgiveness. God forgives conditionally, therefore we are to forgive conditionally. Nowhere in the Bible do I find that God holds us to a higher standard of forgiveness than he does. If God's forgiveness is conditional and we're to model him, ours should be as well. Now I'll conclude with these two questions. First, does God love everyone? I know there's more of you that know the answer to that one. Does God love everyone? Yes, John 3.16 tells us that, as well as other verses. Does God forgive everyone? And God calls us to be like him in two ways. We can love people without forgiving them. To withhold forgiveness or to be unforgiving or not extend forgiveness until there's been repentance is not a call to be unloving toward people. We can still love people just as the Lord loved us while we were yet sinners. To not forgive means there's an unreconciled relationship, but it is unreconciled without sin, without bitterness, without resentment, and without retaliation. If you have any questions about anything that I've preached in this sermon or I could pray for you in any way, I'd consider it a privilege to be able to speak with you. Father, I thank you for your word and the great truths it gives us. I come uh, before you burdened that I have rightly divided your word and would simply ask that if I have, that the teaching would be received as though from you. I pray, I don't know what was preached here that could contradict things that people have heard before, but regarding such an important topic as forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration of relationships, we want to let your word be the instruction manual for us. If I said anything incorrectly or wrongly this morning, I pray that it would bear no witness to people's hearts, that it would be that seed that just does not, does not, 
uh, reach any fertile ground. But if what I've preached would be from you, Lord, then I pray it would be received by your people and that we would strive to apply this to our lives. I do thank you for the forgiveness we've received through Christ and the privilege it is to be able to forgive others. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.